I don't know where it came from or how I even said this, but I just said to my father, you did not raise me. My grandmother raised me. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. Australian actor and singer Paul Capsis is something of a national treasure in his homeland. His dazzling acting and vocal range have earned him multiple awards and honors, and he glides effortlessly from big-budget mainstream theater to film to intimate experimental cabaret pieces. He's performed to critical acclaim all over the world, including during the pandemic, when he presented a one-person show at the Sydney Opera House broadcast live over YouTube. Paul and our co-host Matthew became friends about 20 years ago. And on this episode, created from a series of interviews conducted over Zoom, you'll hear them talk about Paul's experience growing up in Australia, the child of Greek and Maltese immigrants, having a brutal, emotionally unstable father, how he learned to stand up for himself against physical and emotional abuse, and how all of that influences the work he does today. This is the first time he's spoken publicly and in such detail about his father, who died in early 2019. We're recording now. Yeah. And um great so tell me about your father paul my father chris capsis was a young immigrant his father migrated to egypt from the peloponnese around the late 30s the egyptian government kicked out all of the europeans in egypt whether they were born there or not My grandfather decided that Australia was the best option because of the amount of work we had here. My Greek grandmother had two brothers in Australia, her eldest brother, George, and her baby brother, Dino. One sister went to England. She'd married an Englishman. One sister went to Canada, I believe. Three siblings went back to Greece. He was in Australia for about six years before I was born. He met my mother uh, in 19, I think it was 1961. He was 20, and I think my mother was actually 19 when she became pregnant and was forced to marry her. He lived with his younger brother, his mother and his father in a little house in Marrickville in Sydney. He didn't really attend school. He struggled with English, but in Egypt he was studying to be an engineer. He had a job in the TNG building in Sydney a cleaner and my maternal grandmother worked in the same building because she says the day I was born my dad was working and my grandmother was working and he went up to her floor and said guess what we had another boy because in those days men didn't go to the hospital 
they weren't there in the labour room and they weren't even at the hospital. The woman was expected to do all of it by herself. What was the relationship between your mum and dad like? It was quite volatile. She found out once they were married that he was not suited to her and vice versa. And also my mother being a non-Greek was an issue for my father's side of the family. What was the tension like between your mother's Maltese family and your father's Greek family? And they clashed in a really bad way because from the patriarchy on the Greek side, the man was the head of the house and the man had all the control. And on the matriarchal Maltese side, the woman ran the house and ran the family and had more say in how things were done. I can't imagine Australia in the 60s was a particularly easy place for a young Greek man. In Egypt, the Greeks were part of a very tight-knit community. They were well-educated. They lived very well. They had a privileged life in Egypt. My family found Australia to be a very odd place. They didn't understand the Anglo-Celtic idea of how one is, like how parents were and how religion was viewed and the freedoms women had. There was a difficulty in adjusting for a lot of the Greeks, a lot of the migrants. And I know from my Maltese maternal side, they found Australia very strange, very unwelcoming. Was your father religious or your father's family religious? My Greek grandmother was very religious. I'm, I'm not sure about my grandfather because he only really spoke Greek and I don't know much about him. He's a bit of a mystery to me because I couldn't understand the language. I couldn't speak the language. I don't know him. I just remember him as a figure. My great grandmother was always the one who would go to the church and my dad would go because of my grandmother. But when my grandmother died, at the age of 94 in 2008. My dad really stopped all that religious stuff. What was your father's relationship with his own father? If I believe what my father's told me, his father was quite brutal with him. One of the stories he said was that my grandfather used to lock them in the bathroom in Egypt all day long and go and work. He would strip them in their underwear. This is what my father told me. He would strip them in their underwear and go to work and come home and let them out of the bathroom. He said he was extremely jealous of my grandmother. He didn't trust her to be at home on her own. My grandmother told me that story as well. I I don't know really fully what happened. I just know there was something wrong in the behaviours of my father and my Greek grandmother. Do they suffer from mental illness? Yeah, without question. But, you know, undiagnosed, no one able to really talk about. Well, my father did go through, as he told me, he went through electroshock therapy and it makes sense for me from those deep and dark memories I have of going to see him in a place that looked like a hospital in a darkened room with him as thin as a rake and a robe with his eyes dark and his hair messy and dirty, you know, like not like him. Did anyone talk to you about what was going on? I just remember my great grandmother saying, we're going to visit your father. He's having a rest because he's exhausted, which I thought was very strange. We went with my grandfather, he drove us. And I just remember being disturbed 
by this uh, scene. Was there a lead up to that? I mean, had he been behaving strangely? I just remember his usual behaviour, the smacking, the anger. There was a period when his character changed and it was a big surprise to my older brother and I was when he met his second wife. He became this other person for a very short period. And when I say short period, I mean for a number of years. He just became this very nice person. It was astounding. All of a sudden, a shift in his personality. He was kind, he was friendly, he was loving. He would kiss us and hug us and be nice to us and laugh with us and encourage our creative sides. My brother's drawing, me performing. I just thought, wow. And I thought it was her. I I thought she's done this. The new woman from Uruguay, she's made him this nice person. She was incredible, sweet, gorgeous, blonde, attract. Her English wasn't good. She would give us ice cream. And I remember when we saw her, when we saw my dad, we wouldn't see my great-grandmother. But it didn't last once he married her. He was back to the same old person that he used to be. And she started changing. What what I I picked up as a child was this woman wasn't happy. And I could see my great-grandmother had moved in. My grandmother toned down later in life when she got older and frailer but I have very vivid memories of very bizarre, troubling episodes with my grandmother. I remember her screaming and crying and they had to call the priest and I remember that men would come and all of it was in Greek, see? So I don't understand what was being said. And often they would decide not to speak English because they wanted my brother and I to speak the language that we were supposed to adopt because we were Greek, according to them. Our blood was Greek, not Maltese, not Australian. We were Greek because it came from the father. My Greek grandmother would instruct my brother and I, you are what your father is. You're not what your mother is, especially when we were young. Well, for myself, it's something I never forgot. By the time I reached my mid-teens, around the age of 13, 14, I deliberately rejected the Greek side of myself because I was told this by my father and I didn't accept it. I rejected that. I didn't necessarily feel Australian. I wanted to be more Maltese because of the Maltese was a very different, gentle, accepting, loving side. Where did you live as a child? I grew up in Surrey Hills in Sydney in my grandmother and grandfather's house, my mother's mother and father. We lived in Redfern. When I was born at Crown Street Women's Hospital in 1964, I left the hospital and went to live with my auntie. My mother's sister and husband had a granny flat in their yard in Redfern. It was a tiny two-storey, one-room granny flat By the time I was six months old, my father had pretty much abandoned my mother. He went back to live with his mother and father in Arrickville. The relationship had gotten so volatile. There was verbal and physical violence, according to my mother and according to my father. What happened was my maternal grandmother 
said to my maternal grandfather that my mother had been abandoned with babies, with a sick baby and with me, a newborn. And my grandmother decided that we would live with her in her house in Surrey Hills in Lansdowne Street. And I lived in that house until I was 20 years old. I was also forced to visit my father on weekends because apparently that was the law. What were the visitations like? They were pretty awful. My father would drive us up. We would have lunch with my father, with our grandparents and my uncle, Con, around the table in Bankstown. My grandmother would do all the cooking. She would do a big, lavish lunch, you know, multiple dishes. Then my father would stay with us for a little bit. He'd go out into the yard and he would spend the time under the car. And my brother and I would either be in the house with my Greek grandmother or we'd be in the yard playing. And then my father would leave for the evening. He might have dinner with us and then he would go and then he would return the next day. We would have lunch again with him and then we'd be driven back to Surrey Hills to my mother and my grandparents. Not particularly present even when you're spending time with him. No, and when he was there, he seemed to me to be very angry, very short-tempered. He would usually say derogatory things about my mother to my brother and I. He would call her a whore. He'd say, your mother's a slut. Your mother's a bitch. Your mother goes with men. Your mother doesn't care. I never wanted to go. I never looked forward to them because of how different the paternal side was. We were smacked. We would get a smack from my father. His mother and his father were much stricter. There were all these rules we had to live by when we were there. There was a lot of rules. Even at the dinner table, we had to have our hands in a particular position. We weren't allowed to speak. We weren't allowed to ask for anything. We weren't allowed to reject anything. We weren't allowed to say we don't want to eat that. So there was a lot of force and the stress of being there would cause my brother to have asthma attacks at night after my father had gone. He would not be able to sleep or lie down and he would have to hold the walls. And I remember my great grandmother and my grandfather slapping my brother with the shoe to try and get him to stop his asthma attack. And this went on and on and on. And I would remember crying my eyes out because I could see my brother was being attacked or slapped, uh, punished by my grandparents. How much of this did your mum know? We didn't tell my mother until we were much older. There was an incident when I was about 14, 15, maybe even 13, 14, I started to become more myself. And so my hair was cut in a particular way and I started wearing very colourful shirts, Hawaiian or big floral designs and front up to my dad's with this look. And I remember once my brother and I were in the yard and my great grandfather called me over And he never really ever talked to us or to me in particular. Uh, And he called me over and he said to me in his broken English, what is this shirt? And he slapped my face. My brother witnessed that. And I didn't say anything to my father. 
But when we were dropped off that evening by my dad, I saw my mother. She was at my grandmother's and I said, oh, a really funny thing happened. Papa slapped me today. My mother went, what? I said, yeah, he slapped me because of this shirt. He said, why are you wearing this shirt and slapped me? And my mother turned to my brother. She said, did you see that? And he went, yeah, I saw it. And my mother then said nothing. And then a week went by. I forgot about it. My dad turns up to pick us up. He's at the door. Our pajamas are packed. And my mother, who normally wasn't there at the house when he picked us up because she couldn't stand the sight of my father, normally my grandmother would be there and uh, send us off. But this time my mum was there. And when my dad knocked on the door, my mother answered and she said, your effing asshole father slapped Paul. And if I ever hear he ever touches him again, I will stab. She said a lot of stuff. And my dad stood there open mouthed, didn't know what the hell was going on, didn't know what to say. My mother sent us off. We went with my father in the car like we always did. My father didn't say anything, but I was shocked and horrified of what my mother did. So dad doesn't speak in the car. He's angry, I can see. And I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh. And we get to my grandmother's and grandfather's at Bankstown and nothing is said. And then we're all sitting around the kitchen table to have our lunch. And my father asked my grandfather in Greek, what did you do last week? And my grandfather's shaking his head, no. And then dad says, well, my dad says he didn't touch you. I said, oh, well. And he said, well, but then how did he hit you then? And I uh, said, you know, slap me, just slap me. Left a mark on my face. My, then my dad punched me in the face and I went flying. I mean, it's kind of funny now. I laugh because it's quite comical of how I flew across the kitchen and my chair fell back and he said to me, like that? And I called my father a cunt. The first and only time I ever called him a cunt. My Greek grandmother screamed in Greek. Oh, my God, listen to what he called his father. And I think I may have called her one as well at that point. And then my brother and I made a pact that we would never, ever tell my mother anything ever again. And he threatened to break our arms and legs if we didn't tell him where my mother went who her friends were, where my grandmother went to play bingo, and we did that. I did tell my mother when I was 18. I said to my mother, do you realise what you did that day? Do you realise what you caused? Well, I'm going to tell you. you? No. She literally changed colour. When I told her this, she went in, she turned white. She was horrified. You kept making us go there. And she said, yeah, that, that was the law. And also he, my father never paid her what he was supposed to pay her. So, so I said to her, yeah, but isn't that part of the law that he pays you? And she said, yeah, I could never make him pay. So I said, so we would go when he wouldn't pay you and endure this because he would threaten her. It's surprising that she had no idea considering that she'd endured abuse with him when they had been married. Indeed. Not long after that, my brother 
stop seeing my father. How old was your brother when he stopped? He would have been around 16. And by the time he was 19, he didn't really see my father much thereafter. And I was afraid of my father. I was because of his volatility. And I was very cautious and careful with him. And also because of the way he was, I learned not to tell my father things about myself because I thought if I did, that would put myself into danger. So I learned withhold things about myself. I kind of became mute. So if your brother stopped talking to him altogether because of the fact that he was so abusive and then you kept talking to him, but it seems to whittle you down a bit, why did you keep talking to him? I had a kind of a guilt and it really goes back to this blood thing. In my family, there was a lot of talk of, about blood and where my blood came from. My Maltese grandmother, my maternal grandmother, when I would tell her about my experiences with my father, I would tell her about how I really didn't want to see him and how I really didn't want to see my, my grandparents, that I wanted to stay in Surrey Hills with my Maltese family. She would say to me, your father is your blood. She would say to me, that's your father. And I say, yeah, but he does this. She go, I know your father does this, but you really should see him. And because I thought so highly of my grandmother, that is, I think, a lot of the reason why I kept going. But the interesting thing is, as I got older, things started to shift and change. I made a pact with myself around the age of 16, 17. I decided that if things continued the way they'd been when I was a child, as in, i.e., there was this physical abuse and there was this bad behaviour, as I would call it, and things that were said that were derogatory of my mother or derogatory of my maternal grandmother, then that would be a deal breaker for me and that they would never see me again. Did you make that clear? Not necessarily, but I started to see them less and less. So that's something I should tell you. I would make excuses and I would try not to see them. Definitely not every weekend by this stage. My brother definitely refused to see them. Then he got married. He was married at 19 my brother, and he did not invite my father to the wedding, let alone my grandparents. He did not tell them he was getting married. That was left to me to tell them. At the same time that my brother was married, my father's second wife left him. I remember very vividly around, I guess I was 17 or 18, my father said to me, it was just the two of us. And he said, you, you know, I, I raised you and your brother and it's because of me. He started saying this stuff. And I just remember getting incredibly angry, like boiling up with anger. Because at that age, I really had an idea of who did what in my life up until that point. And I don't know where it came from or how I even said this, but I just said to my father, you did not raise me. My grandmother raised me. 
by then my Maltese grandfather had passed away. He passed away when I was 14 years old. And I just said this to my father in such a way that his eyes widened and he said, yes, your grandmother raised you. So he backed down. Yeah. Later in my life when I reflected on what my father's relationship, what his input into my life was or wasn't, what I didn't feel I got from my father, what I most certainly didn't get any unconditional love from him, that I got from my grandmother. What I got from him was a lot of rules and instruction and a lot of what he said to me growing up was not very useful. It was never something that was going to help me in, the, in life. There was always threats. There was always, you will do this and you will do that. If anything, I remember his younger brother, my uncle Con, would say to my brother and I, you know, you need education, you want to learn, it'll help you in the long run. He would tell us things that were useful, helpful. But I cannot tell you, Matthew, that to this day that I ever remember my father saying those things to me. It's interesting that your uncle was so different to your father. You know. Polar opposite as a man, as a person. And uh, he brought up his three children in a very different way. To, and they are very different people. He went out of his way to protect his children. He never allowed his mother to see them. And he certainly never allowed my father anywhere near them. So for the last 24 years of my grandmother's life, she never saw her grandchildren. And my father was never part of their lives. Unfortunately, my uh, uncle committed suicide three years after my great grandmother's death. And that was a big heartbreak because he was a very different man. And my father lived longer than him and uh, they never spoke. They never reconciled. What was his reaction to that? He immediately went into blame. He was looking to blame. I did not see grief. I did not see empathy. I just saw blame, anger, blaming the wife, blaming. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, like, what are you blaming? You didn't speak to your brother for 24 years. Are you kidding? I didn't see regret. I didn't see tears. I saw none of that. What was his relationship like with women? I always felt that my father was burdened by this notion of patriarchy. He had this anger. And I don't know if that was because my great grandmother had some kind of control over him or had some sort of, I don't know, weird expectation of him. And he did not treat women well. By the time my brother stopped seeing my father, um, there was a period where he'd come and get me with the car and I'd go and, you know, see my grandparents. And there were things he used to say to me in the car about his experiences with women. And sometimes they were explicit sexual experiences, things I did not want to hear. Women that he knew that he was dating or? or... Yeah, women, exper yeah. yeah, experiences yeah. with women. Like I'm bonding with my son and... I'm going to talk to him as a man about women and what he does right. with women. And I found this disgusting. I remember when we were older, he's being cheeky and funny. He would say, just to let the three of you know, there are no other children, you know, 
I we go, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, just so, and maybe there were. <laughs> right. I don't I don't know. I Do you know we I, the, I found that out about my uncle. My father and his brother were polar opposites. And my uncle was a famous wrestler on TV in the 70s in Australia. And then when he died, we found out that he'd had all these illegitimate children all over the country when he was doing publicity. That ties in with my, one of the things we were forced to do when we'd go to the Greek grandmother was we were forced to watch wrestling. Maybe you watched my uncle. I'd say we did. My brother loved it. I did not. You probably did. That's so weird. Oh my God, Australian wrestling. What was his name? We allowed to know the performing name. Yeah, his name was Sonny Dalton. I bet we did. Oh my god! On the little black and white TV. <gasps> Matthew, this is the another twist. He was the villain. We would have to watch Sonny on the little black. We should. We would made to sit in a room. I guess it was to make us heterosexual. I have no idea what why we did it. I hated every minute. You know what's so funny about that? My uncle Sonny was such a jerk to me. He was such an asshole because he didn't like that I was like not super masculine, etc. He loved my younger brother, but he hated me. And I always thought it was so funny that a man who wore spandex and played a villain on TV like was lecturing me about masculinity. I know, right? Well, privileged, entitled person, because that's how they saw the world, men in those days. All I saw was the violence, and I didn't like it. I just didn't, I hated it. Yeah, there was something weird about that, even though it was such a joke, and to adults, I think, because adults knew. Well, us kids, we thought it was real. Yeah, me too. And, and But it was also an extension of that masculine violence you experience anyway, you codify. Yeah. Yeah. How did your father's misogyny, aggression, just, I mean, his, the difficulty that you experienced with him mm. as well personally, how did that impact your understanding of your sexuality and your relationship to men? I didn't like men when I was very young. My father was like a dark shadow representing men in my life as a child. I just found men these scary, angry, aggressive things that I didn't particularly like. I know that I loved women. I loved women's energy. I loved how women looked. I didn't like even the way men looked as a child. I just thought that men were the most dull, uninteresting things. But I also didn't identify as male. I wanted to be a female when I was a young person. I rejected the idea that I had anything to do with those things, those creatures called men. I didn't want anything to do with that. I wanted to be a woman. I was a girl. And then later, as I got older, I used to have a collection of clothing that I would hide from my father I was okay to do it with the Maltese family, but I knew that I could not let my father know. And then one day my dad came to pick us up and my brother and I must have had an argument and he outed my drag to my father. He pulled out a bag of my uh, frilly uh, chiffon petticoats, my auntie's petticoats from the 50s that I dragged down from the attic at my Maltese grandmother's house I had a wonderful collection and they were the most treasured things to me. 
that I was so happy to twirl around and talk to myself and sing songs and perform and pretend I was Betty Davis and, and Shirley Bassey and God knows who else in my grandmother's house. And then one day my brother pulled out the, the bag and exposed this to my father. And my father was very cross. My grandmother was a saint. My mother's mother, she'd say, he's just a little boy. He doesn't know. And my father going, no, no, he mustn't. I remember one of the most humiliating things that ever happened as a child around that time of 1911 was my dad took me to this Greek family for some big do. And it was a family I liked and I really liked all the kids. I remember them and there were a lot of other people there. And this man, he would have been, I'd say, probably either late 20s, mid 30s maybe even for 40-something, he grabbed me in the corridor and said, what are you? And he shook me. He said, what are you, vre? In Greek, he was speaking in Greek and in English. I didn't know what was going on. He said, you're a girl. I'm going to pull your pants down and I'm going to see what you are. I started screaming or crying. And then he said, I'm going to call your father. And he called my father. And he said, what is going on with this kid of yours? What is this, a girl or a guy? Show us. He humiliated my father. He humiliated me. It's a very vivid memory. How did your father react to that? Absolute shame and shock. And my father was angry, but he was angry with the man. He told him off and swore at him and said, fucking settle down, mate. What the fuck's wrong with you? Leave him alone. That's my son. This is, he's a boy. What are you, what are you doing? My dad, when he want, you know, he would have your back. To what extent do you identify as trans today? I don't identify as trans at all today. I don't identify as that. But I do acknowledge that I have a very strong, real female part to myself. The beginning of my life certainly started out that way, that I, I was very sure I was a female, not a male. And I did not want to identify as male. I did not want anything part of maleness. When my body changed in my teens during puberty, it was like a war on my body. And the most gross thing I could imagine was being turning into this thing that I detested and was mourning the loss of what in my mind was my femaleness. And then later I accepted myself as I am in the body that I'm in and that I would be what it is that I am without really putting it into any category. How did you come out as gay to your father and how did he take it? Because of how my father behaved or how he put himself out there in the world, I thought I'd have trouble with my father. But on the other side, I also thought that if I did get grief from my father, that I would disown him, that I didn't need him. And then if he rejected me, that that would be okay, which is odd, isn't it, really? Because he was the least of my concern. One of the things about my father was in his macho behaviour, the one thing he would never do is call his son dear. And he called me dear once. And my eyes nearly popped out of my head. And clearly my face made of rubber gave it all away. And he just said, he went "Mm," like that. Like, there's your confirmation. I know your dirty little secret. 
And uh, that to me was the indication that my father knew I was gay. And throughout the years, he never ever wanted to talk about it. The only time he was forced to talk about my sexuality was when I introduced him to my boyfriends or partners. And he's only ever met me too. I was in a long-term relationship around the age of 34, 35, my first one. And I took him to meet my father. And my father was incredibly rude to this person. And that's the thing about both parents was the reality of my sexuality came with my introduction of the said people, the men, making it a reality, a horrendous truth. So they were confronted by it. So with my father, I never talked about it until I introduced him to someone. And then he met my current partner and he, my current partner is very, how do I put it? He's alpha male. So there was a connection. And he introduced him to a friend of his once as Paul's partner, which was also a revelation. When the film Head On came out, he went to the cinema to see it. And I said, oh, the Greek community in Australia are very upset about the film because of the subject matter, which is this drug-addicted, homosexual, young Greek-Australian man on the rampage with his trans friend, me playing the trans friend. When I said that to my father about the Greek community, he said to me, you leave the Greek community to me, I'll deal with them. The wow, different aspects of my father. Surprise, surprise. Why do you think he was fine with that level of expression of queerness and not so much just day to day? It has something to do with a film being a public event, something that multiple people see blown up on the screen. It went all over the world. It played every country. I guess it was out of his hands. Do you know what I mean? So in with intimate settings, like for example, when I'd see him to go and have a coffee or a lunch, he just didn't want to talk about it or wasn't interested. But then he was never interested in anything anyway. He wasn't interested in my heterosexual brother's relationships. So in, in a funny way, it made no difference. I rewatched Head On in preparation for this interview. It was on Netflix in the US at the time that we recorded this. And I am struck by the similarity between the moment in the film when the character you play, Johnny Tula, stands up to their father while in drag and the moment that you confronted your father in real life when he tried to gaslight you about who raised you. I'm going to play that scene right now. Μην γυρίζει σαν πουτάνα μπροστά στο σφίλο σου, που στη μαλάκα. Go fuck yourself, you drunk as fuck animal. Tula's back, papa. Just get used to it. Μην βάζεις το όνομα της μάνας σου στο στόμα σου. Το Μάρι. You piece of shit. He calls you. So much of that scene is visual, of course, but there's a palpable focused rage even in just listening to the way that you project your dialogue. What do you remember about filming that? When you work with a a director like Anna Kokinos, and I've worked with a number of these people in the theatre, when you work with them, they demand absolutely everything from you and then some. They're on your shoulder literally demanding this performance from you. I look at that scene between Johnny Tula and the father, 
and I can see the seething rage in my face. And I've drawn that from my father without doubt. And I've drawn it from my life and what I've witnessed with Greeks and their fathers. A couple of years ago, you developed and performed Angela's Kitchen, a play in which you talk a lot about your Maltese grandmother and where she came from. But it contains pointed references to your father as well, like this scene. To me, the yard was never a yard. It was a world. It was cities and countries. The bit in the middle was Malta, and the bit on the side was Greece, because Dad's from Greece. And I'd find the big bricks and pretend to bomb Greece. I'd bomb the ants. They were the people running for the shelter, and I would kill them with the bombs from the Germans. Did he say anything to you about that? He didn't talk about it much at all, except to say, I didn't know you could speak Maltese. I remember just looking at him blankly, and the thought came to myself that, yes, you haven't really ever known me. That's what happens when you don't have an interest in your son or any of his sons, really. There's so much my father went to his grave not knowing about me. I'm not also the type of person that has patience to sit down and say, Dad, you know, when I was asked to do this piece, it was mostly about immigration. It was about Malta in particular, about the Maltese grandmother. So what comes through in that play is that my Maltese grandmother was my parent. I remember there was a woman once after one show, she said, oh, your poor mother, she must feel terrible. This show clearly demonstrates that your mother had very little to do in your life and in your upbringing. No one was mournful about my father. But, you know, I was uncomfortable about him seeing it. What do you remember about your father's death? Well, I was in London working in a production of um, Rumpelstiltskin. It was incredibly demanding. We worked every single day. We had the odd day off. We rehearsed in Adelaide. Before I left for England, I didn't see my father a lot. But when I did see him, I noticed he had a frailty about him. And my father always behaved and looked like somebody much younger than he was. He was 76 years old when I last saw him and I said, Dad, are you okay? He goes, oh, I've had this issue, these issues and my doctor says I've got walking pneumonia. And about a week before the show finished, I got a text message from my half-brother saying, you need to call brother. It's an emergency. I called and he wasn't really telling me directly what was going on. He said, look, dad's been diagnosed with lung and liver cancer stage four. And because of Angela, Maltese grandmother had stage four lung cancer and I knew there was no hope for her, I took that as being not a very good thing. He was being very vague about it. And I got quite frustrated over there in London that I couldn't get a direct answer because also at the end of this uh, performing contract I had a week to stay and enjoy London because it's a long way to go for an Australian so this phone call meant that I had to start considering the fact that I might have to go back to Australia earlier 
which I didn't want to do. So I decided to bypass him and call my father. My dad answered the phone. Immediately I could tell from the tone of his voice that my father was scared. He said, when are you coming home, son? I said, well, Dad, I've got five shows left and then I've got the week. He goes, okay, son, come back if you can. And I said, so what's going on? He said, well, it's not good. They've given me three weeks to live. I remember speaking to a couple of my colleagues over there in London, particularly my Greek colleagues, uh, Eleanor uh, Karpedis and uh, Michaela Berger. And they were like, Paul, you really have to go back. And I said, yeah, look, I have a complicated relationship with my father. So this is not an easy one for me to make. With my Maltese grandmother, I probably wouldn't have even, well, I know what I did because I was in New York when she got her news and I had a difficult time going back to Australia. And that's what I did. I paid a fine, quite a sum to change my ticket. The day I arrived in Australia was the day my father was being discharged from hospital. He made the choice at that time he wanted to die home. I remember going to the hospital as he was checking out and I saw an immediate change in my father. He couldn't speak properly. His eyes were yellow. He couldn't walk very well. He was a little angrier than he normally would be. And so I went back to his apartment with my half-brother. And, you know, I tried to see him every day. Did you have larger conversations with him about your lives, his thoughts on death? No, but what I saw in my father was an extraordinary courage. He didn't talk about any of those things. But I remember we were in his kitchen and he was talking about the preparation, the things he was doing that he needed to do. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I have to do this because this is what's happening. And I remember my eyes welling up and not being able to speak because I just thought, what courage. He organised bags of his stuff to go. He organised for things to be sold. I went with him to his lawyer to organise his very simple will. He had a couple of vintage American cars, not much money, and this was the reality. As he progressively got worse and his body was shutting down, he agreed at the last minute to go to palliative care. He decided that dying at home wasn't going to be as easy as he thought it would be. Really quite astounding for somebody who had been given that news and I just saw my father get on with it. Do you remember the moment you found out he died? It was 3 a.m. and I woke up and I bolted up out of the bed and I picked up my mobile phone and there were a number of messages from my half-brother. So I called my brother and he said, Dad's gone, he died half an hour ago. I've been trying to call you. I got a taxi or an Uber to the palliative care and I remember there were no cars on the road. It was such a quick journey and we were there in like 15, 20 minutes. And I just felt numb and I went up to his room and there he was. The bed had been made and he was a kind of greeny yellow colour. And I just looked at him and I thought, wow, he's not here. 
he's gone. With my two grandmothers, when they passed, I felt their energy lingered in the room, that their warmth, that they were still there. But with my father, he was not there. And I remember the first thing that came out of my mouth with my half-brother and his mother in the room, I said, Daddy-O has left the building, which is a very strange thing for someone to say. And then over the preceding days, I just got incredibly angry. I was overcome with anger. I, I wasn't expecting to be like that. I thought I'd be more empathetic. I'd, I knew this man for 55 years. What the hell was wrong with me that I could be so angry? I guess that's a kind of grief. The anger was about the things that were missed, the opportunities, that my father was the father he was. I was angry about everything. I was angry about him. I was angry about his mother, his father, and what we went through, my older brother and I, with them, with those weekend visits. What was his funeral like for you? When I saw my father's coffin go into the ground, the one powerful thought that I had, the one incredible thing that I had surging through my body, my entire being was, this is the end of this chapter of my life, the Greek chapter, that whatever it has been through my life is now over as they lowered his body into the ground. And that, yeah, that was it. So it was a kind of relief? It was a kind, a weight had been, something shifted. The anger shifted, I guess. I wasn't as angry. Do you talk to your brother Manuel about your father now? No. The one thing I said to him, I said, of the three of us, I said, you were the smartest. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you gave dad no time. You never saw him. You protected yourself. You kept yourself away. You got on with your life. I, I guess when my dad, before he died, he put the three of us in his very simple will, which, you know, there was nothing to inherit. But anyway, it was a symbolic thing. Even though my father never saw my brother Manuel, he still thought of him because at the end of the day, my dad, in, in, if he was ever honest with himself, would know that he didn't really give my brother what he needed in life. I know for one thing my brother acknowledges what happened. He was witness to it. I was witness to it. So we both know the truth and both of us agree that that's what happened. So there's no delusion there between us. How does your memory of your father sit with you today? I mean, you know, I can say I, I inherited a belt and a scarf from my father. I suppose it's better than nothing. I don't think about him a lot. I have to remind myself that I, he's gone. I think, oh, I should ring dad. That's my habit. And then I go, oh, he's not there. Physically, he's not there. I just can't ring him. So I won't. I don't have to. That's good. Isn't that terrible? I don't know if I miss him. I think I may feel different as I get older. What I can tell you is I miss my Maltese grandmother more as I get older. I have to remind myself that dad's gone. I'm kind of relieved 
that I don't have to see him anymore. I guess if I was to think about my father, the thing I liked about him, part of what I, his character was that he didn't care and part of his character that he was brash and vivacious and, you know, didn't hide or didn't hold back. The things you seem to like about him now are things that you yourself do as well. I mean, you're someone who is unapologetic and brash. You live life the way you want to live it. Yeah, and I think in a way I'm sh- I know I'm influenced by my father. Most certainly I am. There's no way I could not be. Even though I didn't see this man day to day as a young person, as a child, the weekends were enough. His personality, his character, his energy, that was enough. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. Our supervising producer is Chris Gellis. Want to tell us about your father? Follow us and send us a message at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook, or call us at 1-888-318-DADS and leave us a voicemail. If you'd like to, you can become a Tell Me About Your Father Patreon subscriber to get extra content galore for as little as $3 a month. Also, check out Daddy Issues, our bonus Dads in Pop Culture Patreon podcast. Find it and more at patreon.com slash tellmeaboutyourfather. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Special thanks to our mums, Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum.